Today I talk with Marcella Middleton, co-director of Away Home America, a leading organization in the movement to end youth homelessness. Marcella's story could be framed as, quote, a foster kid who made it, or even someone whose experience with the system motivated them to work on behalf of others coming up through those same systems. And both of these are true. Marcella is killing it, and she is leveraging her own experiences in service of others. But there is so much more to the story. She's someone who was born vivacious into a life that made her resilient. She was educated by academia and the block. She has felt profound rejection from strangers and profound love from a mother, a sister, and a parade of other family and friends. Let me introduce you to Marcella Middleton. So Away Home America was built to really be a part of a movement that was working to end homelessness, but in a very different and radical way in that we want to shift power to the people that are experiencing those things so that we can get to that end goal in a more realistic way, right? Because like people with lived expertise, they know what it feels like to be on the street. They understand the urgency, or I should say we, we understand the urgency. We understand all of the factors that play into how you may be afraid when you're homeless or, you know, how you're really vulnerable. And a lot of people take advantage of that, even if they're meant to help you or there to help you or have resources that will help you. So Way Home America is just here to make this movement realistic and stay alive and help us get to this ultimate goal of, of ending homelessness for young people. By young people, what are we talking about? We really work 18 on up, so teen to young adult. A lot of the work that we do could reach to younger people that are underage, but there's a lot of systems that are already working with those young people. So most of the time when the the population that we work with are aging out there around 18 and, and above. Aging out of... Any system. System care? Yeah, system child welfare, uh, foster care, group homes, that type of thing, or a mental health facility, or even juvenile justice, you know? So basically, I think what I'm hearing is like you're filling that gap that I know exists, which is we take care of the babies, we take care of, by law, K through 12, and then after that, you're an adult, even though you have no skills, no one's taught you anything, you have no safety net, but you're an adult, get out figure it out. Absolutely. That's where you step in. Yep. Okay. Yep. Can I ask you your age? Yeah, I just turned 30 on the 26th of January, but I'm still considered a young adult based on, oh, thank you, based on how we qualify a young person to be a young person at Away Home America. And how long have you been the executive director? A year now. This would be like, like December was like, oh, baby, you got a whole year under your belt. <laughs> Okay, so how did it come that you that the young people were in charge? Away Home America, you know, started this power shift really earlier, but the but the reconstituting of the steering committee to become this leadership body with fifty one percent or more of young people with lived expertise, that was like the really huge thing that a lot of people, you know, hadn't done. But prior to that, I was on the forum, myself and other like really awesome leaders in this movement were a part of like True Colors United's forum, the forum to end homelessness. And we were collaborating with the Way Home America really early on, like just in our time on that forum, we were working with the Way Home America to really shift what the, you know, goal, the overall goal. And, and that's when we shifted from like being vague about like the work that we wanted to do to being like really clear, like we are working to, in homelessness for black, indigenous, people of color and LGBTQ plus young people. Like we're being very clear and, and leaning into this idea of targeted universalism, which is, you know, if we can help the most disenfranchised young people, then we can help everyone. So it's not, you know, we're not furthering this disenfranchisement of young people. We're actually doing it at its core, where it's the worst, and making that extend to all young people that are experiencing homelessness. And you're not doing direct service. 
No, we don't. You're do a policy. Workshops. You're a policy organization. We are. We are. Which I, which I think is a it's another thing that's unexpected. Yeah. Like having young people in charge of direct services, I think is a little bit more relatively more accepted, common. Because it's like, you know, as one of the older adults, it's like easier for, for say, oh, well, yeah, I don't know exactly what a homeless youth might want, mm-hmm. like directly. But y'all are just stepping into that policy space. Yeah. So that, which leads me to the New Deal, which is audacious, like yeah. wonderfully audacious. So t- talk to me about that. Talk to me about it. Yeah, so the New Deal to End Youth Homelessness is our bold policy proposal around ending homelessness, and it is comprised of five different pillars. And so the first one is house, the housing justice pillar. The second one is child and family well-being. The third one is juvenile justice. And the fourth one is the economics pillar, justice pillar, to include education because you cannot have economic justice without education, and then also immigration. So the the last pillar is the immigration justice pillar and all five of those pillars. The reason we pick those pillars is because a lot of young people touch all of those systems and they fall through the cracks of those systems and end up homeless. And so we wanted to be mindful of all the different ways that young people are intersecting at all of those systems and how those systems need to work together and, and not in a siloed way to make sure that young people are not, they're not contributing to this larger homelessness issue. Right. Because once you got like this little window, mm-hmm. you're transitioning out of this minor space, then you're just one of the, any other adults wandering the streets. Like you're, you are lumped in with the same services if you are 22 and homeless with a 50 year old war vet who's yep. homeless. And those services are very, very different. Very. So I think I know the answer to this, but what kind of what kind of uh, responses do you get when you put this proposal out? Uh, I think we've gotten a lot of great responses, and we've gotten a lot of like, hmm, I don't think y'all can do this type response. I think a lot of like the support has come from people that have been there really at the New Deal's inception. Like they were there from from day one and they really understand that everything values wise that Away Home America pushes was was what sewed together the New Deal and, and made it what it was. So we had young people with lived expertise from the very beginning before the New Deal was even called the New Deal. We had young people with lived expertise, myself included, and other really great young people who were contributing to that that piece of work. And it's been that way throughout the entire creation of the New Deal and continues to be that now as we're shifting from this New Deal being just a federal policy proposal to now a federal policy agenda um, that we really want to push and, and get momentum on the hill with. Do you show up at the on the hill a lot? I don't myself. And, and the reason that I don't is partially because of COVID and then also because we are trying to get really clear about what we want before we go to the hill and start making demands. I think a lot of like a lot of what we have in the the proposal is like really bold and really clear that like look this is what needs to happen and the the culture that we want and need in this work has not <laughs> permeated to heal folks so we have to be really strategic about how we're bringing this to the hill and also remaining very steeped in our values so we're just trying to get really clear before we go on the hill get your story straight absolutely yeah, I like that because, I mean, I was thinking that you might get a lot of pats on the head, right? You know, like, <laughs> oh, this is like, this is too big, too many pillars, too expansive, yeah. which is ridiculous because it's based on data that shows that the piecemeal doesn't work. Yeah. Away Home America is serious about data. They have these squads through which folks are invited to join the movement to eradicate youth homelessness. There's a policy squad, a communication squad, and there is a data squad. The data squad is an embodiment of Away Home America's mission to house and share the most comprehensive data set related to all aspects of youth homelessness. This includes narrowly focused housing data and capturing the intersectionality of the issue, child welfare, juvenile justice, and the other underlying institutional roadblocks that contribute to youth homelessness. 
you haven't yet gone into the federal space. So do you have wins already? Do you have who's helping you set the goals? Like, how are you going from a collective of people with some really good ideas to making something happen? Yeah. So I will identify first, like our hugest partners are eight young people with lived expertise who are a part of a policy team that is actually creating the federal policy agenda that will be pushed on the Hill. So they're the ones that are really pushing this. And we have our great partners, the Housing Justice Collective, who is a really new and like wonderful entity. They've been involved with us since the inception of the New Deal, but transitioned as an entity to the Housing Justice Collective. We really love and appreciate them because as the Way Home America has been going through these huge transitions, like Housing Justice Collective is like, look, <laughs> we are here to support you and really just be your backbone as you're building up this this really great organization. We also have really good funders that like believe in what we do. And even through all of our transitions, and I say like me being in this position was a transition. And a lot of the people that were original to uh, Way Home America, they've moved on to do other great work. But in those transitions, you know, our funders have been really, really supportive, which I really appreciate because I'm new to this field in their eyes, right? Like I've been here forever, but I'm new to them in this role. And so like the fact that they're like, they really believe in what we do and have our back 100%. They're really good partners. And we have other organizations like True Colors United, Youth Collaboratory, just a lot of really great partners, funders together, like really good folks that like have our back and like really believe in what we do and are continuing to partner with us and, and shifting with us through all of the changes. And I say changes because we are not only just, you know, transitioning out as an organization to new leadership and, and power sharing, but like this is a cultural shift, you know, in our movement. And so the fact that our all these people are like, where's the we are still down with y'all like that. That's a lot. So we've got a lot of good folks that are on our team. You know, I came across you through a presentation y'all gave on my day job. And I mean, I was just blown away. I need to make this clear for folks who are listening and don't understand that to have folks under 30 who are doing this work at this policy level is unique. It is so unique. And not only are y'all doing it at a policy level, but you're not just kind of rushing in, right? Like you're taking the time and understanding the the process mm-hmm. and the, the nuances. And the reason it's amazing is not because of your capabilities. It means that somebody is opening doors because that's been the problem. Mm-hmm. Like you have to get past the gatekeepers. And I'm like, how did y'all get through so many gatekeepers that you ended up at my day job? Because that's a (laughs) lot of gatekeepers. So that was what was impressive. And then you were presenting because then some of the people who get through, like I said, direct service, people are a little bit, it's just something more palatable for whatever reason. But in this space, it was really, really impressive. So let me ask you about you. Before you came here, you were also doing some work at an organization called SESO. Yeah. So talk, tell me about them. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I love SESO so much. And I always tell people when they ask me about it, I am a lifetime member. and so proud of that. SESO really gave me my start in this work. I was 15 and I was in foster care. And I've always been really outspoken. I think I was outspoken in my mother's womb and she kind of knew just that's what it was going to be. And so like being in foster care where like my voice like really didn't matter. I had all these people who were making decisions for me, all these adults who knew what was best for me and no one was listening to me. And I was so frustrated by that. And my social worker was like, you know, let's go to the say so event. And I went to it and I saw nothing but young people like hosting it. You know, they were presenting at workshops. They were leading all of us different places as we were going through the conference that day. And I was like, this is for me. Like, I need to be here. (laughs) It was other young people that were like me. Like, you know, we all were in foster care, but they were just running the show. And there were no adults around like, hey, you know, you can't do this. And I was like, this is it right here. Like, this is where I need to be. And so... They have elections every year to be on the board in March. That And that's also SESO's birthday every year as well. So we have young people that come from all over the state of North Carolina 
And they hear all about Say So all day, and then they're able to try out to be on the board. And we, I got up and I was telling my friend, I'm like, I'm going to do this. I got up and I did my two minute speech and like everybody was like, yes, I think you should be. <laughs> I was already feeling it. So, you know, it happened and I was on it and I, I transitioned to being a board member to then being a SRA, which is a say so regional assistant. And, and I had a job when I was in college because not only do you get the experience of being on this board and like contributing in that way to things that are that you're struggling with and other young people are struggling with, your siblings are struggling with, but all young people in foster care are struggling with, they also make sure that like you have a job afterwards. So you're not just left off, which is which is important, right? Because like we have so much you age out. There's so much you're done. You know, yeah. and say so didn't do that. Like say so's motto is like you can always come home to say so. Like we're a family and they really were that and are still that to me to this day. So they really gave me so much and, and I can say so much career wise, but like just the love and the guidance and the support, even when I was going through really ugly things, like just makes me like say so is everything to me. I love them so much. <laughs> and they are their direct service and advocates, right? Yep. That's the role that they fill. Yeah. Yeah. Glad you mentioned that, that you went to college. Yeah. Because this is another thing. <laughs> See, my goal here, let me tell you my goal. <laughs> Your organization is great. I want people to hear about the organization. I want people to hear about the work. But I, I also want to confront everyone's idea about what a young person doing this work is about. Thank you. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, because <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned is that you went to college. So again, this is not someone's working behind you, like pulling the strings. Like you're a professional. Yeah. Give me your, give me your credentials. Tell me who you are, why you could stand in the room, what you studied. Yeah. So I got my degree in social work, my bachelor's degree. Funny thing, I got my bachelor's degree in social work because my social worker was like, this is how you become a counselor because that's what I wanted to do. I got my degree in social work and I started doing social work for a few years. I did social work and like direct service social work. I could not do it. It was rough. Like not that I couldn't do the job, but I'm like, here I am. I was a kid in foster care and then I'm watching these parents do this and I don't agree with it. So I got to get up out of here. Um, and I started training social workers and I was able to like bring my expertise as a young person that was in foster care. And now and also, you know, my social work experience to this role. And I noticed how it was really like social workers like, oh, my God, like I really needed this. Like, I wish that I could go to my old job and say, can I have all my evaluations? Because I just want to show people that because <laughs> they really loved it. And they really learned a lot. And I saw like social worker, a lot of social work switch come on the way that it needed to to really help young people. So I did that for about six and a half years. Absolutely loved it. I've been an advocate since I was 15. So now that I'm 30, it's been 15 years. Um, <laughs> and I've done a lot. Longer than a lot of people who are looking looking their, down their nose at you. Like, hey, I, I've, been I've been in this way. Yeah, yeah you knew. I'm not new. You I'm knew. not new. You knew, baby. Yes. And you know, it's so funny because like at 15, I was such a boss. Like already, like I was going to bed on time. I was up like at, at my meetings, like 30 minutes ahead of time. And I was always, I was just doing what I need to. If you talk to people who knew me when I was 15, they was like, yeah, this girl is really going to do the damn thing. So I did that, but I also bring like a lot of my expertise from work that I did, not only just as an advocate, but as a motivational speaker and speaking to so many young people that are in foster care and in substitute care situations. So outside of foster care, being in mental health, juvenile justice, those type of things, really working with those young people. And that I feel like is the work that I'm the most proud of, because not only was I able to be in a position to talk to young people that were just like me and like give them hope in a situation that's really tough. But like they really got me through my life. Like they really got me through my life. Like being able to talk to them and the way that they came to me and was like, oh my gosh, thank you. And I love you. I was like, no, thank you. Like, thank you for being open to hearing like my experience when you are dealing with something so difficult right now. And just those relationships that I was able to build through that, like, means so much to me. And also being able to talk to young people about their sexual health, which is really important, too. Because not only is their sexual health tied to, like, having sex, but, like, also relationships that they build with intimate partners, which a lot of times for us in foster care, 
we are left for whatever reason by the people that are supposed to love us. And so when someone shows us love in these intimate relationships, most times we go with that and it may not always be good for us. So the fact that I was able to be in a position to be vulnerable with other young people about, you know, what I experienced as a young person in foster care and like how I navigated relationships. And even as I got older, even when I was older than them, I'm like, look, this is this is what it is, but this is what you can do. And this is how you do this. So I look at those more like my degree in social work is great. And like 15 years, all that's great. But like, I really like all, all of my experience really comes from being able to work with young people who really know what's up and really are just like free from, they're free from a lot of things that adults are like caged in by, imprisoned by. And that's just like trying to be in this mold of professionalism that a lot of us don't really fit in. Even people that made that up don't fit into that. But like they're just free in the way that they are and they're what they offer is authentic and real. And like that to me, being able to be around that and like having those young people grace me with their knowledge and like their honesty and like everything. And just I feel like that's like the most thing I'm proud of. So tell me about, to whatever level you're comfortable, tell me about your foster care experience. Yeah, so it was jacked up. And I know people are probably like, (laughs) exactly, probably. Um, But it was hard. It was really, really hard. And I will say this. When I was younger, it was easy because I was a cute kid. I was a little cute kid that everybody, I want to pick you up. Oh, you're so cute. Oh, I can, you know, blend you into my family. And it's so easy. And um, I'm really- Wait, 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 wait. So we got to stop because this is audio. Yeah. And they can say that because you are light skin. Yeah. You're black though. Yeah. And you have good hair. Oh yeah. You Becky with the good and hair. Put the quotes around the good hair because that's just an all. Yeah. You know this is a thing. <laughs> you know. But yeah, and and you're very personable, and I you know I come from early childhood background, which is like it's always so unfair because the kids that are easy, yeah. they give out a little glow, and then and it's easy, and so then people reinforce it, and you've got this. Back and forth. Whereas if you were shy and reserved, you end up on a whole different path oh, yeah. for no reason. Yeah. I Can I just say, I, I just want to say this real quick, that I appreciate that you said that because my sister is that kid that's so quiet. Uh, and like her trajectory was a lot different because of that. Shout out to her. I love her so much. She's a great person too. But yeah, so I was, you know, I was this little kid and, you know, everybody loves you when you're a little kid. And plus all the things that you said, I mean, that factors in. It's the reality of it. And when I turned into a teenager, everybody was like, oh, no, no, we're not a kid. No, you know, that's when people were like just against it all. And that's when I really started to struggle, like being in foster care, because I wasn't easily, I guess, meshable into family units as I was when I was a kid. And I was also struggling with things that normal teenagers struggle with. Like, who am I? All the people that I do know, I'm not around them. I'm around strangers. So I'm trying to figure out, like, who am I in this world on top of I'm vulnerable in a system and I'm around people that don't love me because they don't know me and I don't love them because I don't know them. I don't know if they're safe or not, but I know I'm here. I moved around a lot to... 16 plus different homes to include respite, which is when your foster parents go out of town and they don't want you to go with them, you go to somebody else's house. But include those. Over how many years? Over, I went from age two on to 21. And that was, well, I would say age 15. So the 16 plus I moved around when I was here in North Carolina and I moved here when I was 13. So from 13 all the way up to 21, I moved to those different houses. And I went to 10 different high schools. So I was always the new girl, which was rough because everybody thought I thought I was better than them because I was the Becky and I (laughs) was light skinned. And everybody, all the guys were like, oh my God, it's a new girl. And the girls that they went to school with, they've been with them since they were in kindergarten. So they're like, oh, I'm tired of that. I need something new. So I was always like the point of like, let's get her pitchforks. (laughs) Um, so that was rough until I'm like, I don't even care about none of y'all. I just want to go home to my mom. Right. right. (laughs) Like you don't know how little you matter to me. Exactly. Really don't even know. Like you're just a speck and I really want, I miss my mom and I miss my siblings. So that, it was really hard. And I would, I will tell you what was harder than like the high school experience was like being in homes with people that already had kids because their kids were out for you. If their parents showed any inkling of love 
for you. They were like, oh, it's on and popping. I got to get you out of here. You know, so wow. that was that was really, really rough because I remember living at a home, me and my sister we're living at a home with this lady and like this was like oh thank god we found her like she's so nice she was so sweet just very loving and she had this huge like gigantic house huge and me and my sister my mom bless her taught us how to clean so we were just up and down all these floors just cleaning her house because like that's just what we knew yeah yeah yeah. and her daughter was like really lazy and like didn't care to like clean up and stuff so here we are cleaning up and like making her mom happy and she's like hey y'all let's run away and we're like well we don't really need to like it's okay here she's like no let's run away I think it'll be the cool thing now here we are navigating like we're young and like we want to be accepted by her but we also really love our mom so we ran away you know quote unquote we ran away you know it's a joke in North Carolina maybe when you're like in a city, it's cool to run away, but like I was looking at a lot of people, like why are you, where are you running to a field? Like I, there's nothing here, you guys. <laughs> I could get on a bus in Colorado and go to the next city or wherever I wanted to go. Here, I'm like, where are we running to, y'all? <laughs> Nonetheless, <laughs> we ran away, and her mom was livid when we got back, but she wasn't mad at us. She wasn't. She, she knew it was her daughter. <laughs> so now her daughter's like. What's he making her look even worse? Yeah, so now she's like, I really have got to get these girls out of here. Like, I really, I have to do something to get them out of here. And she ended up making it to where we had to, where we moved. We ended up moving. And we actually got separated after that, which was really hard. But she made it happen. So those type of situations are really hard. And just the fact that you don't know the people you're living with. Like, who are you? Like, who are you? And the things you're used to. I was, like I said, my mom was very, very clean. And we were because she was, that's what she taught us. We knew how to cook, clean, you know, do everything we needed to do, pay bills, all those type of things. And we went to some houses where I was like, y'all are nasty and I don't want to be here. (laughs) Right. And you're supposed to be, but you're supposed to be grateful because you're the, yeah. Part of who you are is because of, it's despite the system. Like, was there anything in the system other than the social worker that got you to say so like is there i don't want to leave people hopeless like what is there anything people can go okay this work because what's funny is what you said that about oh people who are with other kids who are trying to show you love and it ends up creating a worse situation like i've yeah my husband and i have talked about being um foster parents and we thought because we are parents and we have this extra space and we have this extra love. Like it never even occurred to us that there could be that response. Although, but as soon as you said it, it made sense, right? Yeah. I'm just stuck on (laughs) damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like what, (laughs) what can a system do? (laughs) I will say that every young person has a, candle a lightable candle inside of them that I look at as like your own personal resilience regardless of what you went through and I know that's like jargony right but like that light can shine and can be lit or brightened by having people that actually care about you even when you have ugly moments and that was like the biggest thing for me because I already felt super unwanted by you know, the situation that my mom was going through. And now that I'm older, I I get it differently. But I was a kid and I didn't understand a lot of like what she was struggling with. And so like just having somebody like really be like, you know what? I don't care what you do. Like, I, I love you. Like, I really do. That caring adult. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I remember there's actually this lady I live with, this foster mom that I live with. And I'm not going to share her name just out of respect for her, but I love her even to this day. Like I love her. She loved me when I was a teenager. She cared about me. And I remember like when this whole time before I came to her house, I used to bite my nails really bad, like down to the bare, like you could see the nail bed. It was bad. And when I got to her house, she had really beautiful, long nails. She's a really older lady. She had this big dog named Capone. I'll give his name, (laughs) but that big dog named Capone And she's this little lady and oh, I loved her so much. And I looked at her nails and I was like, wow. And I looked at her life and she was, she, she was peaceful. It was peaceful. Mm -hmm. It was just her. Like her kids were older and they had their kids and stuff. So 
that was a lot. That part didn't mess up what I had going on, but she was very peaceful and very happy. And she wasn't scared to treat me like I was like her grandkid or her kid. She was mm-hmm. not afraid at all. And yeah. so I started to, just based on the way she treated me, my nails started to grow long like hers. And that was a lot to me. I was like, oh, she loves me. Like, look at my nails. Like, it's those things. It's those things. And like at the time, another thing that was really big to me was like doing my hair because I didn't have control over anything else in my life. Okay. Like I I didn't have control over what home I moved to, what school I went to, who I lived with. I had zero control over any of those things, but I had control over how I did my hair. And when I got compliments on that, like from her, like she'd be like, wow, like you really like, look, you did that. Like you did your hair. It looks good. And I'm like, ah, yes. yes. So she like <laughs> really ignited my light in a way that, you know, it was there. Right. Like I had a light now. I, I love myself, you know, but it's hard when you're going through that to see when other people, like I said, you know, are outside of you and they don't. She loved me and she helped to brighten my light a lot more. And like that meant a lot to me. It meant so much to me. And at a time where I was, I never had been separated from my sister in any foster home that we had been to until that point. After we left from the the other lady's house and her daughter was acting wild. And so that was the first time and that was really hard for me. And she didn't push. She wasn't like, are you okay? Do you need to talk? Do you need, she just like, what's cool? Do you want to come watch Jeopardy? And I was like, yeah. You know, it was just really nice. So there, there is a way. I think, and just believing in us. And I mean, she got on the phone and was like, get off the phone. You know, Tom, here I am a teenager, you know, wanting to stay on the phone. all this. You know, so she just really acted like my grandmother and really loved on me in like a non like evasive way. She wasn't in my face. She wasn't on me. She just, she loved me. Like, and I, I needed that at that moment. I think those are really why we need people with lived experience. Like that's not just a, that's not just a buzzword because that's something that someone can't imagine. You know, it's, it is like the aha moment decades ago when people realize, wait, these kids don't have luggage. Right. What are you telling them when you're walking, when you're telling them to put their clothes in trash cans and go from place to place. Right. Like it's, but, but it took someone living that to recognize those kinds of things because I understand the, the mechanism below what you're saying. Like I get that or behind it. Like, yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. That makes sense. But I would have to, I don't know, throw so many darts at the wall to try to find what is that thing. And probably the adult in me that knows there's a thing would keep pushing. Right. It's hard. I think for even older people who really do connect with young people, I think it's still hard to remember how those little things mean something. And again, most, I don't know the statistics, I guess I'll have to look it up, but most foster parents, I don't know that they're coming from fostered backgrounds. I mean, I know a percentage are, but just thinking practically the number of foster children who have a hard time becoming self-sustaining adults who would then be able to foster other than, of course, fictive kin. Like, I don't think there's a lot going back into being a foster care parent that is fully there and able and has the bandwidth to really dig in and and take care of someone else. So that means that most of them are coming from some other well-meaning and good, and I'm going to give benefit of doubt of where people are coming from. I mean, we know there's a whole other realm but it's another show but I mean even for those that are coming from a good place they're not coming from that same experience yeah very true very very true and it makes it hard because like when you're young and you already feel misunderstood like here you are in a house and like the the bare minimum is not understood about you like when I was at home with my family I could make a joke and like everybody knew it was a joke like everybody knew that all that shit that you know that's Marcella and you know, when you go into a home and you're like, you make a joke and like it falls on deaf ears just because people don't know who you are. They don't know. And that's not what they're used to, what they grew up with. It's really hard sometimes to get into that space. But I think, like you said, it really just leans on like people with lived expertise, being able to be in these spaces and sharing those moments that help people have a different perspective and a different understanding when they want to embark on helping someone 
you know, like helping a young person that's vulnerable in a system. For the record, I didn't find much on foster parents who had been fostered as children. There's no national database for foster families. And search results of the major child welfare practice policy and research hubs also netted GUSAG. Folks who are steeped in the child welfare system may have access to these kind of data, but I didn't have much luck. Most sources focused on the age, race, religiosity, and economic status of foster parents. Questions related to prior exposure to fostering were generally in the form of asking if the caregivers had fostered before, known others who had fostered, or had professional interactions with foster families specifically or the child welfare system generally. The one data nugget I did unearth was in a 2015 foster parent satisfaction survey that was done by Arizona State University for the Arizona State government. About 5% of a little more than 1,000 foster parents reported that a personal experience or the experience of a family member with the foster care system was a motivation for wanting to be a foster parent. The word experience can mean a lot of things though. Again, I'm not talking about kinship care or guardianship, which is a very different population. I'm talking about quote unquote traditional or quote unquote official foster care. So either there aren't many former fostered kids who become foster parents, or we're not asking the right questions. Okay, lecture over. Let me also point out something else that you're like just slipping in and out of, and it's probably nothing for you. But let's be clear. You keep mentioning your mom and home. Like you said, you wanted to get back home. You had a home. I don't even know how to grapple with that. Talk to me about yeah. it, though, because you you had yeah. a place. You're not. Yeah, you weren't yeah. lost. So, I was yeah. not. I have like a whole family and my aunt. And, and my both of my aunts and my uncle, like I know all these people, grandma, grandma, like these are my people. Like, you know, I wanna also say like my mom, I'm a mama's girl, straight up and down. So they literally could have put me in Mars and I would have found that lady. Like I would have found a way to call her, see her or whatever. And so like, you know, I think like part of my journey as I started doing motivational speaking and like really just speaking to foster parents and social workers and lawyers and judges and all these people that want to know, like, how do we better support these young people? I, in the beginning, I started to notice that like these people, based on what I was telling them, created a monster in my mom. And when I started to feel that it altered the way that I began to, share my story in different places because I didn't want people to see her as that because I didn't see her as that. I I wanted to be real about my experience. You know, that's for me to do, but also at the same time, balance this version of my mom that I wanted people to know outside of just like, oh my God, you had kids that were in foster care like that. That's my lady. Like I love her. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I actually am like working on right now, trying to write my life story when it comes to me and my mom's relationship because that's something that means so much to me and I had to figure out how to navigate it and that was one of the big things that I always told people too like you have to figure out how to help young people that want to maintain relationships with their family navigate it the way that best suits what they need you can't just try to cut them off we all listen we've all got people in our family that were like oh you know you need to watch out but you still love them you still they still come to all the functions and stuff but you know it's just like when you're in foster care they're like let it go let them go no that's who i love that is me like so when i was younger it was like they would say oh you know she's her mom is this on drugs or alcohol and doing all this and i would internalize that like well do they feel like i'm gonna be that and so that was the messaging that was swirling around in my head as a kid and i had a fight with that a lot i really fought with that a lot and like I said as I got older I was like dang how do I tell my story without making my mom look like a villain because she's not and she taught me so many things before I even came into foster care like that lady taught me a lot of stuff and believe it or not that woman got me through college she did not financially pay for it but she her words to me saying I'm proud of you I didn't even pass a quiz or a test or write a paper that got an A on it or anything. It would just be a moment. We would talk on the phone and she was like, I'm proud of you. 
that's what got me through college. Like for real, for real. Like that's what helped me get to that that hat and that, you know. And and I love her for that. And I and when I'm talking to other young people, I let them know it's okay to love your people. They're your people. It's okay. You just set the boundaries that you feel like are important for you in this relationship that you want to have and you want to maintain. But don't ever feel bad about loving your people. They're your people. That's okay. That's powerful. I've written about this. I've spoken about it, all this stuff about the luck of parents and who your parents are. And I do then, because I do anti-poverty work, talk about like the physical things, the resources. But there's this string of confidence and love and other intangibles that are the most important. They're the things that are driving. You know, I, I talk about it's no fun to tell my parents when I do something great because they're like, of course you did. Right. And that's what you're saying. Like, you didn't take anything. Your mom's like, I'm proud of you because of who you are, like just your existence. The other thing that sparked in me from what you said is this other way of looking at equity. So I'm a researcher. I love data. Data is great. We got to count widgets. We've got to have performance metrics. I believe that. I believe accountability is incredibly important. And without it, the system goes as bad as the system is, it gets worse. One of the things that connected with me when you were talking is this idea that equity is also about understanding other perspectives and this white supremacy that sneaks in. Slaves that ran away, enslaved persons that ran away from their slaveholders were labeled as crazy because they're running away. So that was the mark of craziness, right? The fact that they're trying to leave. In foster care, children who leave are troubled. They're, they're difficult. They're all these things and it's like, but they're trying to get home. And it's such a white supremacist idea you know, explicit, implicit, whatever, we'll play all those name games later, but it is a white supremacist idea of, but we've created this place that you're supposed to want to be in. And I think that's kind of what it makes it difficult, even for the most well-meaning person and not just white people, it's embedded in the system because that's the problem with structural racism is that it becomes something that you don't even need white folks to operate it, right? That, it just operates on its own continuing. And you could be in the blackest of black, brownest of brownest yep. places. The system still says, if you try to go home, you yep. are the problem. No, that that's that's real. I used to tell social workers when I when I talked to them and was training them. You know, a lot of y'all will let a young person transition out of the foster care system, ill-equipped, and then talk about them. How can you do that? <laughs> How can we look at young people that are experiencing homelessness and just talk bad about them, but not talk about how we did not prepare them at all for success in the world? And that there were moments that we missed that our egos will not let us visit and hold accountable in ourselves. That is huge. And I think even in the work that I'm doing now with The Way of America, a huge part of our values is accountability, and that's inward and outward. I can't push accountability if that's not something that in-house we don't have working. As ugly as that can get sometimes, still needs to be working in-house. And then as we project and we are working with other people, that's something that needs to be, A, accountability, straight up. We're not going to play these games, you know, and that's the way that we change the system. And And to your point, like, it, it's a system that continues on, you know, this this white supremacy, but anybody can play it out, you know, and a lot of times that that is how it happens. It's, it's just people playing it out. And the less we acknowledge that and the less that we want to get uncomfortable, the more that that's going to continue. And all the things that we want to ultimately end, which is the suffering of young people, won't happen because we won't even get uncomfortable about the things we need to get uncomfortable about. That's what I love about the New Deal and what you guys are trying to do with this big idea is because I think for like, I'm, I, I am not, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm like a, it's cold outside. Can't we figure out a way to do this in paperwork? You know, like, I'm like but I'm also a person who recognizes that everybody has to play this role. Right. So like, while someone else is trying to destroy the system, I'm like, okay, let me keep these, these people going until that's done. Right. Like you, you need both yeah. at the same time. But I think that having that lived experience, 
being able to inspire, connect with, and articulate with others who have that lived experience. Because I know you are now, I, I, I'm going to say I know because I feel <laughs> confident about this, that you are now that that person, that caring adult in other people's lives. You are now that person that's saying, oh, somebody sees something in me. I know you're doing that throughout your life. It takes that to come up with yeah. the big idea while the rest of us are like, oh, well, can we figure out this waiver? Can we figure out how to get them? Like, can we do all these things which are important yeah. and necessary? There's got to be somebody who's like, I'm going to be uncomfortable and I'm going to fight for the yeah. big idea. And I'm, I'm fascinated by you people who fight, fight <laughs> for the big idea because you, you're going to lose yeah. most of the yeah. time. You lose yeah. most of the time. And then to come from a space where you were already at what other people consider a deficit, right? So one of the things that I said to you when we talked earlier was you lead from confidence. And I mean, I already just as a black woman know that people look at me, look at people like me, like, why are you confident? And I'm like, why are you asking me such a messed up question? <laughs> what are you trying to say? But you're also coming from a space where not only did you get that just in general, but then every time you moved, like you said, you had to deal with feeling abandoned. People are making you feel like conflicting ideas about your mom. And then you have to go in the space where there's more rejection because there's, like I said, more times than not, funders are going to say no and yeah. legislators are going to say no. Yeah. How are you doing that? Yeah, I will tell you that it is hard. It is hard. And um, shout out to my executive coach, Megan Scott. She is a real... OG and like really has my back and I appreciate her not just because she has my back I mean that's the biggest piece but like she's black and she's young and she gets it like how we have to navigate these spaces like I can literally just like oh this is what I'm going through and I went to five meetings today and I was so disrespected and people like don't want to engage the way that they should or they said something rude or whatever and like she really supports me in that but I also lead with like at the end of the day and if I don't do this I, I will probably just die of stress in this work but I always lean on the the fact that whatever energies you put off into the world you will get back and I don't mean that as like I'm exempt from that or I'm talking about me specifically right now but I'm saying like as we are fighting for this there are people that do not see youth homelessness as an issue nor do they care to see it as an issue or something that they need to fight with us to fix but the pandemic was a great equalizer for a lot of people so a lot of people that naturally were getting money and like doing well and looking down on other people i don't got no food stamps and oh, i'm not on section eight <laughs> now they're in the same lines with the people that they talk shit about and so yeah. you know there's energies in this world that will humble you very very quickly and i lean on that but i also lean on like there are and more than anything young people that are dying out here in the streets and like shouldn't be and like let's keep fighting to do that every day i wake up you know i'm like this is what we got to do let's let's do this like let's do this we, we've <laughs> got to like we've got to and as many times as i've cried because as G as I make myself seem, I am G, you know, but <laughs> <laughs> I cry because I'm human. And like when I see that people are struggling to see what needs to be seen to help other people just live out a like quality life, like that's hard. That's really hard because even when I was a kid, I'm sure people, there's a lot of people that didn't give a damn. You know, like they did not care. And a lot of people love to be the savior. So they care so that their ego is stroked, but they don't really care about how you really come out at the end of it. And so like for me, it's, I just really want to make sure that young people are li able to live a quality life. And those young people that will turn into adults and go on to have children or go on to be with other people, they're able to live the life that they deserve to live, the life that we all deserve to live. And if we're all deserving of living a great life and a quality life, then we are all responsible to make sure that we all live that way. And I just hope that people get on that boat and we can all <laughs> ride to victory and liberation. <laughs> when you're talking, what what is the most persuasive thing that you've found to get them to realize this is a unique population? Yeah, I think the main things that I say and try to highlight when it comes to this 
this unique group of young people is that they all have the ability to do this and they don't need you because we're resilient anyway. I tell people today, we've been on the streets and we done dealt with a lot of stuff and we got through it. And I think the support and authentic support really can take it up a notch for a young person. But more than anything, like we're capable. Like, don't forget that. We are capable beyond. I don't think that the circumstances that a lot of us in should uh, impact how people see us for the rest of our lives. Because there are a lot of times situations that were unwarranted. We did not ask to be in these spots. And so the fact that we're being strong while we're experiencing this says a lot about our capability. I think that it would do people more justice to see that as opposed to like fight against it. Yeah. Like just lean into that capability, lean into that. If we are going the selfish route, you'll get a lot out of it if you lean into it, you know, more than you think you would. That's what I would say. And among a million other things that I would say, because I really can give kudos to just the knowledge and expertise that a lot of young people, all of these young people that come to this movement and all these young people that have these experiences, they are just rocking it and really know what's up. And they just need to be positioned that that door has to be opened in order for them to come through and really shine and show just how amazing they are. And I think a lot of us that are in this movement, we're not just coming here to, to tell stories to get people to feel sad. We are utilizing the pain and the everything that we went through to make sure that other young people do not experience that. And that requires for us to all partner together and make this happen. So I think just really leaning into that, that capability of all the young people that they bring that, that's what they have and that's who they are. And just lean into that, respect it, value it, honor it. And you will be surprised what you get back if we're being selfish <laughs> in that way. <laughs> all right. Well, I have enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. This has been great. I have enjoyed it as well. I appreciate you offering me this space on your podcast to grace people's ears with, I think, what's really important beyond me personally, like just with young people and what young people have to offer and all the good things that Away Home America is being a platform for young people to be able to push out. So I appreciate you so much. And I hope that people can gain from this. Thank you so much for listening to Elephant Stories. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please subscribe, share, or just talk about what you heard. You can also find my contact info in the show notes if you want to reach out. I, Tupring Westbrook, produced, recorded, and edited today's show. The original theme song, which is new this season, comes from the brilliant musicians at DRTM Productions. Thanks, Robin and David. Okay. Talk soon.